Well, if you have your Bibles, and I sure hope you do, if you turn to Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 will be our, our passage this morning. Last week, as a church, uh, Christ Fellowship, we began a five-week sermon series on the five solas, uh, five essential doctrines that emerged from what you just saw, the uh, 16th century Reformation. Uh, they identified a critical distinction between the Protestants and the Catholic Church, and these five doctrines were termed by the Reformers sola scriptura, solus Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, and soli Deo Gloria. Some of you may be familiar with that. Maybe you have heard that. Some of you may have never heard those words before and you just wondered what I said. Uh, sola means alone. And so we have scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and glory to God alone. And so because of our love for Christ, our love for his gospel and his church, we as a church are taking the m this month of October, which is celebrating 500 years since that Reformation when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg Church. We're taking our time to study these five hallmarks of gospel-centered theology. And we're doing so not just because we think it's good to hear about tradition, but because these truths are central to God's word and therefore should be crucial for us as a church to believe and affirm even today, especially in the day that we live in. So we began our series last week looking at sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And we turned to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're reminded just why it is that we should unashamedly affirm that scripture alone is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for doctrine, but also for our life. You see, it's this doctrine that stood as the fundamental principle of that Reformation. It's a truth that must be foundational for us as believers. Where do we run to for our truth? We run to God and to the word that he breathes out. He speaks these words to us. We do so by taking a posture of reverence and acceptance we adhere our lives to his authority in his word. And so this morning, we want to continue to do that by opening up God's word and hearing him speak from his word. Isn't it great that God speaks to us through his word today? Uh, that we don't have to wait for some voice from the clouds. Uh, we have his word in front of us and he speaks to us through it. So you're in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. Follow along as I read from God's inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, oh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works, so that we can serve the living God. This is God's word for us this morning, so let's thank him for it. Father, we are so grateful that you still speak to us in your word. That every time we open it up, even as we read earlier in Hebrews, that it, it goes to work in our hearts. It's like a sword that cuts open 
our lives and reveals the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It shows us where we are weak, where we have tried to be strong in our own power and yet have failed over and over again. And yet when it shows us that, it shows us the beauty of Christ who stands in our place. When we are weak, he is strong. When we have failed, he fulfilled. And so God, this morning, do that through your word. Show us how our faith is in your son, Jesus Christ, and him alone. That he fully accomplished our salvation. That when he cried out, it is finished, it was. Show us this truth. Awaken dead hearts that might be here this morning who have yet to turn in faith and repentance towards you. And encourage those of us who need encouragement through your word to stand firm in Christ alone. In your name, amen. Well, back in 1996, there were some men that got together and they formed what is called the Cambridge Declaration. And in this declaration, they state this about the truth that we're looking at this morning here from Hebrews 9, about Christ alone. They said, as evangelical faith has become secularized, its interests have been blurred with those of the culture. The result is a loss of absolute values permissive individualism, and a substitution of wholeness for holiness, recovery for repentance, intuition for truth, feeling for belief, chance for providence, and immediate gratification for enduring hope. Christ and his cross have moved from the center of our vision. That last sentence is important for us. In our world today, Christ and his cross have been moved from the center. Many of us find things that we center our lives upon, and yet we fail to see Christ and his cross at the center. You see, this statement from these authors back in 1996 was not an overstatement. This is a reality in our world. This is the day that we live in. Ours is a day when the exclusivity of Christ, Christ alone, is not welcomed. In fact, to say that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life is to invite the label intolerant bigot, right? You've heard that before. But the reality is the day that we live in, truth has taken a back seat to feelings. The gospel of Jesus has been rejected and then replaced with self-help from Dr. Phil. The reformers back in the 16th century acknowledged that there was a deterioration of the gospel in their day, yet it was from a different angle. There was no Dr. Phil back then. It was the church. The church spoke a lot about Jesus Christ. Any church that failed to do so would not call themselves a Christian church, yet the Catholic church added something to Christ. They added human achievement, works, to Christ's work. And so it was no longer possible for someone to say that their salvation was entirely through Christ alone and his atonement. Theirs was a Jesus plus, whatever it might be, salvation. Still, this is the most basic heresy taught by the Catholic Church, the work of Jesus plus one's own righteousness. And so this motto, which you see behind me, solus Christus, or in Christ alone, became this resounding cry from the reformers to dispute this error. Truth is, this motto is still important for us today. 
we urgently need to embrace and preach this truth in our pluralistic society where whatever you want to believe, you can believe in. Since Vatican II in 1959, the Catholic Church has viewed followers of other faiths, such as you and I, as quote-unquote anonymous Christians. But sadly, many even within so-called evangelical churches like ours, whether they are in the pews or even in the pulpit, they even question to affirm and believe that salvation is in Christ alone. And so this is why we must recover this idea of in Christ alone. For if all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, Buddha will do, says Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion, need, and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign, to see the sovereign, even Oprah will do. But, says Moeller, if we need a savior, only Jesus will do. And we know we need a savior. Our world needs a savior. They don't need Buddha. They don't need Muhammad. They don't need Joseph Smith. And they don't need Oprah. They need Jesus. So this is why we must seek to thoroughly understand this truth of solus Christus in Christ alone and capture what is at the heart of the good news, the gospel. So what is it that we boldly proclaim and passionately affirm about Christ? Well, we affirm that Christ alone has fully accomplished our salvation. Christ alone has fully accomplished our salvation. We affirm that Christ and his work on the cross is sufficient. It's enough. Nothing, absolutely nothing needs to be added to Christ's work. Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. And here in Hebrews chapter 9, in these four short verses, and actually just two sentences, we have all the proof that we need to affirm this truth of Christ alone. But, Truth is, God gives us 66 books in his Bible to show us this truth, and we're just going to focus on these two sentences this morning. This Christ-centered basis that we find here is exactly what set, us, set apart the Reformers from the church in their day. And it's what gave them unshakable boldness and confidence to stand before popes and priests and kings. Books like Hebrews fueled their conviction. Now, truth is, Hebrews is a pretty unusual book, and that, for some reason, it rarely stands high on the list of favorite books of the Bible for people, apart, from okay, apart, of course, from occasional memory verses about temptation and faith. For some of us, this genre of Hebrews just seems too, too different. It seems too Old Testament-ish, doesn't it? Uh, and so we don't spend a lot of time here, but this book clearly shows us that Jesus is the greatest. If we could sum up this book in one sentence, it says, Jesus is simply the greatest. Our passage this morning is in the middle of a section that concentrates on the greatness of Christ's sacrifice over the sacrifices of the Old Testament. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9, the, the insufficiency of the Old Covenant sacrifices, all those blood from goats and bulls, 
It comes to the forefront. As the author tells us, they do not usher us into God's presence, nor do they cleanse the conscience from guilt. As verse 9 says, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect, perfect the worshiper's conscience. But then we look at verse 11 and look at those first four words. But Christ has appeared. You see, this is good news for us. Christ has appeared. And here in these verses, we see the identity, the work, and the accomplishment of Christ. He is our true high priest. He's our eternal redeemer. He is our pure savior. And when we see him in his word, it strengthens our conviction that he alone has fully accomplished our salvation. So let's begin by looking more closely at verse 11 this morning. Christ as our true high priest. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Oh, it was not made with hands. That is, it's not of this creation. The author begins this new paragraph emphasizing both the identity and the incarnation of the birth of Christ. The designation of Christ comes at the very beginning of the sentence in the original languages, and it makes an emphatic force saying, literally, Christ has appeared. Now, for those of us who have grown up in the church, we're familiar with these words, Messiah, Christ. So we could be tempted to quickly run along. Okay, I got it. I know who Christ is. I I learned the stories back in the day in Sunday school. I mean, I know who Christ is. We quickly run on to the next statement, but it's here in this name that we find one of the essential building blocks for our belief of in Christ alone. This is his identity, who he actually is. Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that all all creation had been looking forward to, He appeared. If we dismiss the identity of Christ as the Son of God, this promised Messiah, both fully God and fully man, we dismiss the reality of Jesus. And in the process, we ignore what he has to say, even what he has done on our behalf. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, profoundly notes this in his work, Mere Christianity. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet, and call him Lord. Lunatic or Lord? Those are really the only options to consider when it comes to accepting this truth about Christ and his identity. So let me ask you, who is Christ to you? Is he just a, a good man, said some good things, or is he your Lord? As we read earlier this morning, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You see, it's he 
Christ, the Messiah, who has appeared, the author tells us here in verse 11. He has come near. He has become present. If we are to survey the Old Testament, we see that God has spoken to his people through various means. But then all of a sudden, at the end of the Old Testament, you see that blank page in your copy of scriptures. There's silence. You don't hear anything for a while. But then the author, John, writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. and We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, and it's full of grace and truth. That is amazing, that Christ has appeared. Christ actually took on our form, sweaty, dirty human being, for us. This is not only what the previous section in Hebrews 9 was leading up to, but what all Scripture leads up to. Ever since the fall of mankind that we read in Genesis 3, there's been this hope, this this promise of one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. It's this coming that Messiah that Abraham believed in, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's Christ who all these Old Testament prophets look forward to. It's he, the author says, who has appeared. Hope came down and he met us in our helplessness. See, both Christ's identity and his incarnation lay a foundation for what we see next in this verse. He came as a high priest of the good things that have come. He shows us what Christ did for us. Having already explained daily rituals and duties of the priest under the covenant in the first 10 verses of this chapter, the author now begins to reveal this stark contrast between Christ's role as a high priest and the priest of the Old Testament. There's a new era that has arrived in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You see, salvation can only be in Christ Jesus because there's two conditions that must be met. No matter how hard we try, though, we can't meet those. We can't satisfy the justice of God through our obedience to the law, and we can't pay the price for our sins. Those are both impossible for us to accomplish. We cannot do either one of those, but Christ did. And he did both perfectly as our true high priest. He entered God's very presence through, the author tells us, a greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is the heavenly dwelling place of God, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. You see, the Old Testament priest had an earthly tabernacle that we read of in the Old Testament, those were just shadows of a greater priest and a greater tabernacle that was to come. They were just pictures of what was to come. Later in verse 24 of this chapter, we read an echo. It says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. You see, we could never appear in the presence of God by ourselves. Now that that was tried out in the Old Testament. Remember the Tower of Babel? Build that high, get to God's presence. God said, no, 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 no. It's not your way, it's my way. Others tried to step in and worship God in their own ways. God said, no, it's only the true, perfect high priest that could become a mediator. He could step in between us and God, satisfying 
God's justice, paying the price for our sins. And so the author shows us that he is our true high priest. Christ alone has fully accomplished our salvation because only he could do that. But then look as we continue on into verse 12. We see that he becomes our eternal redeemer. He enters the most holy places once for all time. The author shows us that there is some initiative that God takes on our behalf. Not only has Christ appeared by becoming one of us, taking on the role of our high priest, we now read that he entered, he stepped into once for all time, and he became a sacrifice. If we had the time, we'd turn to Leviticus chapter 16, and there we would read of a very bloody day, the Day of Atonement, a day where the high priest would wake up early, would offer special sacrifices for himself and for his family. And then, and only then, after doing that, he would present sacrifices on behalf of all the people of Israel. Having cast lots for two goats, taken among, from among the Israelites, he would slaughter one of the goats as a sin offering and then bring the other goat alive out from the tent. He would lay his hands on the head of this scapegoat, confessing all the sins of the people, and then send it away into the desert. Then he would take the blood of both a bull and sacrifice goat behind the curtain so that the blood of each might be sprinkled on the mercy seat, making atonement for the uncleanliness of the people. Leviticus tells us that this happened year after year after year after year. But notice what the author of Hebrews tells us. Christ entered once, once for all. No repetition of his act was necessary. This one sacrifice was an effective and definitive sacrifice, and it secured the forgiveness of our sins. Christ does not have to be sacrificed over and over and over again. When he said it was finished, it was. In fact, it's with this understanding that those reformers back 500 years ago stood against the Catholic Church who believed and still do today that the sacraments of baptism and confirmation, that those are what make us holy, bring about forgiveness of sin. And even the fact that as we take communion, we see God's son sacrificed over and over again. The Reformers and we today stand firm on this truth that Christ was a once-for-all sacrifice. We're saved by trusting in him alone. Jesus paid it all, the hymn writer writes. Oh, he did not just pay some of it so that we might gain a better footing to add our works to his life. No, he paid it all. So even to try to add anything to Christ's work would be to dismiss his work, to discount his work. We think that adding our baptism or our church attendance, adding our good parenting or whatever good thing you want to add is then going to make us acceptable to God? No, that, that would be to sing Jesus just paid some of it and now I have to pay more. The truth is in our culture of individualism, any concept of 
morality or right and wrong has become so warped and distorted. One author writes, the contemporary person sets their own standard of right and wrong, picking and choosing ideas they want to include in their moral system. Choices like tolerance is right and exclusivity is wrong. Free choice is right, restrictions are wrong. The list could go on and on. Most are unlikely to label anything sin in our day. So there's no need for forgiveness. We hear many around us say, oh, basically I consider myself a good person. Or she is a very moral person. You see, the truth is when we set the standard for our morality, just the terms of doing and being good, we destroy any need for forgiveness of, of sin. And we really dismiss who the author of Hebrews is showing us this morning. We dismiss Christ. We say, oh, Jesus, it wasn't worth worth it. You, whatever you did there on the cross, is, we'll just forget that and move on to other things. See, this is why the cross, the Christ alone, stands in opposition from many in our day. The gospel features are alien to modern man. They appear foolish. The scandal of the cross, writes John Stott, simply cannot be removed. Therefore, we as a church, when we speak most authentically to the world, we speak not when we when we make it when it makes its shameful little compromises, when we make compromises to the gospel, but when we refuse to do so. When we stand firmly on Christ and Christ alone. You know, my, my fear is this morning that many of us who have grown up in churches and would say that we're a part of a, a gospel-preaching church, we would affirm Christ alone by our words on Sunday morning. We would stand here and say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in the name of Jesus. Yet when we walk into a Monday, we aren't so bold to do so, are we? When we talk to our neighbors, Oh, we, we're going we're gonna to be a little bit more wishy-washy. We're not going to raise our hands and believe in Jesus Christ at that point. When it comes down to it, we stand and sing, Jesus paid it all, but we often believe that there's got to be something else that we have to do. We have to add to it by our performance. We have to gain more knowledge or, or do more good for our city. So let me ask you this. What are you adding to the cross? Is Christ and his work enough? Is it enough for you on Monday through Saturday or just on Sunday? What comes next in verse 12 must have been truly shocking for those who are reading this for the first time. For this once for all sacrifice was not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, the author tells us. Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God, presented before God, not the blood of animals, but his own blood. Here, this true high priest who would offer the sacrifice becomes the sacrifice himself. This idea would have been laughable if it hadn't almost certainly been blasphemous to the Israelites. But the, the writer of Hebrews here is, actually leading us closer and closer to the very heart of the deep mystery of Christ. He was the perfect 
sacrifice. The perfect Lamb of God. He was the suffering servant that Isaiah tells us about, who was pierced for our rebellion, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. As the Christ, the promised Messiah who appeared in the flesh as a, as a true high priest, only he was able to be the perfect sinless sacrifice that God's justice demanded. Oh, it couldn't be any other way. The blood of goats and calves could never satisfy a, a holy and just God. Only the blood of one. One who is fully man, but also fully God. Spotless in every way. Only one could stand in between and satisfy God's justice. You might recall that Peter, in his first letter, reminds us of this redemption. He said it could not happen with perishable things such as silver or gold. You can't pay God enough to make your way to his presence. No, it's only by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, as a result of this one once-for-all sacrifice, Christ secured our eternal redemption. His sacrifice was not just enough for that year. It was enough for all time. So, friend, you might be here this morning. The truth is, this is the, the good news that God brought you to hear this morning. This is the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for your eternal redemption. You see, because of sin, we're separated from this holy God. Without God, we have no hope, no redemption, no eternal life, but only eternal death. But in Christ and in Christ alone, our hope can be found. You see, as Christ has appeared, he has come near to us and he has entered once for all into the holy places and securing for us eternal redemption. Not a redemption that you have to do more to gain. Not a redemption that has to be reenacted over and over and over again. No, this is a once for all sacrifice. And so friend, if you have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ and him alone in this finished work, I'd, I'd urge you to do that today. Turn to Christ. Believe in him. It was his task to swallow up death, writes the reformer John Calvin. Who but life could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to rout out the powers of the world and air. Who but a power higher than the world and air could do this? Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed that we would be redeemed, made himself our redeemer. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for us this morning? It's good news for those of us who are sitting here who are condemned by sin, who have yet to turn in faith and repent towards Christ. But it's also good news for us who have done that, who have turned and are living in faith and repentance towards Jesus Christ. It's good news because we feel the weight of the weak upon us. The struggles with our spouses, the struggle with our children. We see the brokenness in the world, and yet we know that we have a Redeemer who speaks a better word for us. He alone has fully accomplished our salvation once and for all as our eternal Redeemer. And lastly, this morning, as we look at the last two verses, we see 
He's not only our true high priest and eternal redeemer, he is our, our pure savior. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are, who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? The author is arguing from the lesser to the greater here, from the earthly to the eternal, from the sacrifices of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer for purification of just the flesh, to the once for all sacrifice of Christ, spotless, perfect blood, purifying or cleansing us. Once again, we see the weakness of the old covenant and the superiority and power of the new in Christ. Those lambs, bulls, goats that were sacrificed could only cleanse the flesh of those who were defiled. But the blood of Christ is, is far better. The blood of Christ is greater. After all, it's the blood of a human being, and not just any human being. It's the blood of the promised one, the Messiah. Notice again that there is some initiative that God is taking here. He is offering himself. Not only has Christ stepped onto the scene, appeared, and entered into the holy place, securing for us an eternal redemption, but now he offers himself. Certainly goats and bulls don't go about offering themselves. They don't, they don't walk into the tabernacle and say, yep, sacrifice me, my day. Christ did. Though he's, he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul tells us. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus said to his disciples in John 10, No one takes it from me, but I lay my life down on my own accord. You see, Christ willingly offered himself so that by one man's obedience, many would be made righteous. Romans 5, 19. You see, Christ offered his life for you. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He knew all the sin that you would commit. He knew the mistakes you would make, and yet he, in love, offered himself for you. We also see here, not only does he take this initiative and offer it, but it works. It's effective. It cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, he has transferred us from darkness to light, from dead works to serving the living God. You see, the cross is not just central to our salvation. The cross is central to our life of service to him. As believers, we enjoy eternal redemption, eternal life in the future but we also experience it in the present. We know that our consciences are cleansed by Christ's blood. And so we've been liberated from our past. We're set free to serve the living God. And you see, that's why we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. You see, we serve a living God from a position of being transformed. 
we have been redeemed to showcase his love and our service toward others. And so as our pure Savior, he not only steps in place, but he then fills us with his spirit and empowers us for the works of serving and the living God. And so this morning, in this passage, we see that Christ alone has fully accomplished our salvation and has set us on a course to serve him for his glory. He's our true high priest, our eternal redeemer, and our pure savior. After a rousing performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the famous Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini, so overcome by the music, is said to have told his orchestra, I am nothing, you are nothing, Beethoven is everything. Oh, if Tuscanini, Tuscanini could say that about a brilliant composer like Beethoven, how much more could we say that about a living Savior? who with respect to our salvation is the composer, musician, and even the beautiful music itself. So let us as churches be churches that declare, we are nothing, but Christ is everything. Father, this morning, that is our declaration. We are nothing. We see our, our sinfulness. We know it. We know We're prone to wander. We feel our sin throughout the week. And yet each week and each day we can stand, wake up and stand righteous in your sight because of the perfect, sinless sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. So we declare that you are everything. In Christ alone, our our hope is found. Our hope is not found in a full bank account. Our hope is not found in a good 401k, obedient children, secure job. Our hope is found in you. Because when we look to you, we see our sinfulness, we see God's holiness, see our eternal redeemer who stepped in our place and covered all of our sins. So Father, this morning, stir our hearts to be people who not just sing your praises on Sunday, who not just declare Christ alone, my hope is found today, but each morning, each afternoon and each evening, we would declare that to our coworkers, our neighbors, our children, our loved ones, so that you might call more people to yourself, redeeming them to be those who would also say you are their everything. Do that in our lives for your glory and for our joy in you and you alone, in your name. Amen.